This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast, a New Statesman network show. Why not try one of our other podcasts like Skylines, the city metric podcast all about the workings of cities, hosted by John Ledge. Find out more and subscribe at citymetric.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week... We discuss how the Tory party has apparently gone mad over a leadership battle. We go mad over the new Doctor Who. And we interview Johnny Reynolds from Labour's finance front bench about the budget. Stephen, do we have to talk about Brexit? Yes, we will have to continue to talk about Brexit for the rest of our natural lives. I mean, you did predict this in 2016, to be fair to you. So I think if anyone deserves any credit out of this mess, it should be you. You're like, this is our national project for the next 10 years. How we laughed in early 2016. It's odd because the thing I, you know, kind of, you know, obviously every year I do an audit of not just things I've got wrong in that year, but things that that year has shown to have been got wrong than than I, I said earlier. And one of the weird things is I, although there has been economic damage, it's been slower. Isn't The weird thing is I did kind of think by this point uh, there would be more political awareness among MPs than Brexit was not like a one and done. Not like a bill that you get through and it yeah. was like the health and social care reform and you kind of go, well, that was a bit, ooh, that was a bit juicy, but thank God that 900 page bill is through now. Yeah. Yeah, because they still haven't finished all the papers for no deal preparation have they in fact they've done about i'm going to say they've done less than a hundred out of more than a thousand this is the thing um you and i were talking about this earlier in terms of your column stuff the reporting this week has been heavily around i'm going to get the number wrong 48 letters have got to go into graham brady who's the chair of the 1922 committee and there's been some beefing on twitter like robert peston says that someone's told him that uh, every time graham brady sees people he keeps going oh don't put the letters in yet as if he's really close and then sam coates the time says well I'd just not actually been able to stand that up with anybody who's actually firsthand had that experience. But what's happened inevitably is that Brexit, a huge, massive public policy challenge, a huge economic event, has, as it did all the way through the referendum campaign, been boiled down to Tory beefing. And I find this absolutely appalling. And I worry about how, as political journalists, we can offset it. Because to put it really crudely, on the day after we leave, if there is no deal, no transition deal even in place, right? That's, I mean, that is technically a possibility. It is not going to matter whether it is David Davis or Theresa May in Downing Street if diabetics can't get their insulin, 
if people are you know looking at empty supermarket shelves the which conservative leader was currently holding the parcel when the music stops is mildly interesting but it's one of those things it's easy to worry about if you've definitely got food and medicine yeah i mean this this is the thing right the the important numbers in politics at the moment are not 48 or 150 whatever it is then we'd have to get to you know survive a confidence vote uh within the conservative party they are 29th of march 2019 and Seven, the number of net Tory rebels you have to have for a not to pass, something which at the moment it looks, well, A, it looks certain you would have, but also, yeah, the thing I, there are many things I don't understand about Theresa May, but the latest thing I don't understand about her, right, isn't, this is someone who won't even bring herself to say, I think Brexit is a good idea, right, who has nonetheless stood up and made a series of promises that she must know cannot be reconciled with us not having a, a disruptive and destructive exit. What does she think her... This is what I find fascinating about this whole kind of theatre of, oh, it's an implementation period. It's not an implementation period. Nothing we may will be implemented. have to have an implementation period at the end of. I'm just continually fascinated as to what her sense of what she thinks she's accomplishing by standing up, effectively lying to everyone, right? Now, yeah, there are lots of people in the Conservative Party who are high on their own supply and are saying things and are frankly delusional. However, it's also hard... Yeah, I mean, no, no seriously. Like, no. Give me an example. I mean, the whole kind of weird thing of just like, well, you know, what what are we getting in exchange for this transition? It's just like the transition, is, but also one, the transition is good for, like the, the problem of Article 50, if you are the departing nation, is you are the, the victim of the ticking clock. Transition, particularly limitless transition, is good for you if you are the departing nation because it, it, ends it protects the ability your of, economic right, of, status, right? While you have time to sort out the details. Yeah, this thing is then, the EU can continually go, here's the cliff edge, here's our deal, what's it going to be? So it, it is just bonkers, right? It is, it is, regardless of your position on remain versus leave, the position and uh, transition and the ability to extend that transition is bad for the departing nation, is, is the politics of people who, who are simply not across the detail and should not be lawmakers, right? Like that, like we are talking about basic issues of competence here. But equally, when has Theresa May ever tried to articulate or explain that to anyone? The answer is she hasn't. She, you know, does everything in this kind of secretive, trusted circles. Here's my idea. Take or leave, take it or leave it. And then says, you know, a bunch of things which are, I mean, I don't think that austerity economics works. Uh, but my God, did they explain it over and over but they again? Expect, like, but Cameron I also Osborne. think that ultimately they did think it was a good idea, right? Whereas Theresa May knows that it is not an implementation period. She's just creating huge problems for everyone else in the country, right? Ultimately, if there is a no deal, she will be fine. Um, not if we burn her in a giant wicker man, she won't. Okay. I'm not advocating that, and as I do not advocate, I'd better not say that really, given that all those mad briefings at the weekend about people wanting to stab her. What, okay, what is that about? Have they all gone... I mean, I think, you know, I, I hope it's it's okay to joke about burning Theresa May and a giant wicker man in the event of no deal, because that's a, a ludicrous, hyperbolic thing to say. But some of this was really like properly nasty about how she could she should bring a noose to the committee room, all right? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, and now, obviously, I do not know who the uh, source of those briefings were, but there are basically only three or four people I think it'd semi-plausibly be... Um, although uh, Tim Shipman has denied that it is Andrew Bridgen, 
lots of the sort of people around David Davis love their kind of military, you know, that whole kind of like, you know, his whole kind of needless to say, I had the last laugh. I was an excess, you know, like it would have been over in five rounds. Yeah, like, yeah, that kind of sort of. Like the guy from, you know, the guy from space uh, who tries to join Rough Ramblers. Nick Frost character from space and then he gets very upset and goes rough ramblers wouldn't have me because he basically he wants to crawl through the undergrowth with a knife in his teeth in the Mm. same way that David Davis I think succumbs to that desire sometimes yeah I I, yeah I find it very very odd but then I kind of almost see it as a kind of morbid symptom I think they're all kind of part of the same thing which is a party that has kind of lost the run of itself right they're just panicking screaming and I think there's almost a kind of feeling of oh my God, it's all going to be a disaster. So we might as well play the kind of, you know, play the violin on the deck of the Titanic. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing is, although I'm not someone who subscribes to the uh, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, Liz Kendall would be 20 points ahead thesis. I am continually fascinated about the fact that this is a a party which does genuinely fear a Corbyn victory. And this is the level of not together they are. I continually ask myself, what would the Conservative Party be like if they were mildly peeved at the identity of the Labour leader, right? What you know, this is yeah. yeah they this, regard him as an existential threat. This, this, yet at the same time, yeah. they're like, hey, but maybe we should make him by you know contrast with us look actually quite sane and reasonable and in, in middle of the road. I think the question, yeah, and the question I can never settle in my head is, yeah, one Conservative MP put this well. They said, well, the problem is, is that everyone round here, this was a Conservative early conference is terrified by a Jeremy Corbyn government, but they also can't really believe it will happen. And so the flip side is, would they actually be more cogent and together if it was someone that they regarded as more plausible? But that's sort of the problem with no-deal Brexit as well, right? Everybody is terrified of a no-deal Brexit, but also no one, I think you wrote this in The Independent, no one really believes that anything that bad could happen. There's a kind of complacency about it. My control chip forces me to say that it was The Eye, which is now a separate publication from The Independent with its... Interesting online footprint, um, <laughs> and and excellent investment from some people in uh, Saudi Arabia, yeah. uh, entirely unproblematically. Well, um, we'll be coming back for a special budget edition of the podcast on Monday. That's uh, as in about the budget. All of these editions yeah, are special <laughs> budget editions. Will <laughs> be in an even smaller cupboard, um, but yeah, and and I'm sure Brexit will come up. Let's be honest. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. And welcome to the podcast, I was going to say podcast catacomb, but it is now the podcast cupboard, Johnny Reynolds, Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury, and father, I think, of the four most photogenic children of any MP, uh, which who feature often on your Christmas cards. And no, I that's think, down to their mum very much. That is a good looking family, I think. Um, you're here to talk about uh, the budget, which is coming up next week. So I hear um, austerity is over. How's that working out? Yes, well, I think that that is obviously the the story of the budget in terms of what maybe the Chancellor didn't want the budget to be framed as, but what the Prime Minister has said it will be framed as. Um, The test is clearly going to be what what level of action from the Chancellor can justify a a claim as as big as that. And I think 
to be as conservative, small c conservative as possible about it, you'd look at two things. You'd look at whether the the scheduled uh, spending cuts to departments will still go ahead uh, up until the end of this spending period. And I think whether the, the cuts to welfare will proceed um, and the much publicized problems with universal credit will continue. And, and to do both of those things, to, to end those departmental spending cuts, you're looking at around £19 billion the Chancellor would have to find. And to do the welfare cuts, to not proceed with them, you'd look at another £7 billion. So if you add that on top of what has already been trailed in terms of perhaps um, the amount of money going into the NHS, uh, which the Prime Minister wants to see, it's really quite a lot. And uh, given that the Chancellor has found it very hard to raise taxation at all uh, in his previous budget, um, it is, I think, quite hard to look at it and say with any confidence that austerity really will end next Monday. So uh, the extra money for the NHS is to fulfil the idea of the or the bus pledge, really. How much do you think the Conservative Party will try and sell any kind of turning on of money taps as a kind of Brexit dividend? I think realistically, they know that simply isn't possible, certainly not possible until the early 2020s, if indeed that is uh, true at all. I think the argument we will see instead of that is maybe an argument that says, look, in, since 2010, there's been a lot of pain, but because of that pain, you, the hardworking British public, have earned yourselves the right to end austerity. And I think for any of us who were there in 2010 and saw that emergency budget and listened to the claims that were made about that, you know, the AAA rating had to be retained at all costs, that there was no way you could even dream of a, of a deficit extending beyond 2015. You know, that is incredibly hollow. And the state of the, the public services and the public finances generally, I would say, strongly proved that that course of action in 2010 was not the right one. So, yeah, question. I, I want you to do kind of a role play thing for me. Imagine that uh, you are a conservative chancellor of the Exchequer. This is your opportunity to set economic dividing lines. I think basically almost everyone other than Theresa May, including Philip Hammond, agrees that the ending austerity dividing line is not a comfortable one for a government, which is certainly not going to do that. What do you think, what would you do given their, given their weird fiscal envelope? What would you do uh, if you were a conservative? What's the thing that if you stood up, you'd go, oh God, I wish you hadn't done that. It's it's a tantalising thought experiment to be Philip Hammond uh, for the day. Uh, one thing that Hammond has been very keen on is to to try and essentially reverse, I would say, some of the damage done by George Osborne with those early cuts to capital investment. He's you know, trumpeted in previous uh, fiscal statements the amount of money that he's putting in. Whether that's a good dividing line with Labour, I would think probably not. I don't think um, he will ever match the level of spending that we would like to see, which we generally think is, is justified in terms of that investment going in. He's also been very reticent to essentially take any macroeconomic responsibility for things like the productivity problem. He's tried to push that down onto firms, which, which I think is a mistake. I think you've got to recognise this is a, a widely um, acknowledged British problem in the economy, and you'd expect the Chancellor to have something to say about it, other than we'd like firms to look at this and come up with some with some decent plans. What's your analysis for why we've got a productivity problem? There are many things that you know, add up to a, a bigger problem. Certainly, we have more people in the labour market in the UK than comparable European countries. So there is some justification to say it's not a, a direct like-for-like like comparison. A economy like ours, which is much more heavily skewed towards services than, than manufacturing, it is, broadly speaking, harder to bring about the productivity gains that you would get if you were investing in sort of new machinery and, and plants and automation and that sort of thing. Um, but there's a there's a particular British problem with productivity that's been a long-running thing, and no one, to be honest, has all the answers to it. But certainly, 
I would say anyone who's experienced that the joys of, say, you know, the, the public transport system around my constituency getting between Leeds and Manchester, two really big economic drivers of the British economy. You know, the state of the railways, the, the quality of the roads, the delays you get. You can really see how strong investment in, in transport outside the southeast would actually really help with some of those productivity problems. And I think, again, that is widely acknowledged, but the, you know, the, the delivery from the government just never matches the rhetoric. So to go back to Stephen's question, then, what is the thing you most fear Philip Hammond standing up and saying? I don't think there's anything particularly that we fear because you know, I would certainly say the arguments around the economy are moving very much towards Labour in terms of the need for investment, the need for a Brexit deal which leaves the EU but doesn't damage um, jobs and growth at the same time. And you know, broadly speaking, outside of the Labour movement, there is a growing consensus that there needs to be some quite severe interventions in the British economy, all of the work from the IPPR and you know, Justin Welby fronting up some of that work. I think that case is growing, and I, I, I find it interesting to see how, how the Chancellor will respond to that. They will probably just go back to their their greatest hits and start talking instead about you know the amount of money Labour would spend or massively conflate our ambitions and our spending figures. That tends to be the standard level of attack because obviously what we can't have from them now is the Osborne claim that frankly austerity is the only way forward and you know the country simply can't afford to do anything else. Um, in terms of, sort of the, the Labour movement, there are two exceptions to Britain's low productivity problem. The first is the, the last Labour government did slightly increase our productivity. The other, uh, kind of in an odd way, more intriguing one is during the three-day week, uh, when productivity went up. The TUC uh, has talked about moving towards a four-day week. Uh, You are one of the politicians who often sort of flirts with kind of new policy and How do you feel about the idea of a four-day week? I think it's a conversation worth having in terms of what you believe the long-term picture will look like in terms of how you know technology and the world of work and what exactly is work in a, in a modern economy changes. I, I don't think it's a sort of practical political proposal you'd be discussing round about a budget. I mean, productivity did rise in the three-day week. Unfortunately, output also <laughs> declined very severely. And I think you know, people have to understand that if you're not going to have a five-day working week, you have to find a way to make sure that the output of the economy is broadly the same if you're going to work less days than that. And I think even if, for instance, a four-day week produced the current output from four and a half days of work, that's still a massive decline in the size of the national economy. And, and you know, to fill that gap would require some awesome gains in productivity and the, you know, the kinds of success that we've not enjoyed so far. So it's a conversation, I think, that is worth having, but it's not yet in the realm of practical politics. Do you think there is a fundamental problem that we are still in a world of work where it is possible to work a full-time job and not therefore end up at the end of the week with enough money to be able to afford a basic standard of living? That was the problem that tax credits were kind of brought in to solve. It's one that absolutely persists. Or is that something that we just have to fundamentally accept? Or is there a radical fundamental way to challenge that? Well, it's certainly the case and certainly not something that we should... Except, I mean, there are two ways you address that. First of all, you need to boost wages, and your wages today are in real terms lower than they were in 2010. So, still, you know, the recovery from the financial crisis has been incredibly slow, and that goes back to those points around has austerity worked? Well, from the point of view of recovering from that big crisis, not really in terms of people's wages. But at the same time, you've got to look at you know what people's outgoings. What is the cost of food? What is the cost of energy? What are the, what's the cost of transport? And there are things that government can do to reduce those things as well. But the the, the driver, and I mean, I, I address a lot of business audiences for the Labour front bench, you know, for our 
of dialogue in our messages. And I say, I know what businesses want is more stability and less political volatility. But you've got to look at what the drivers of that volatility are. And at the minute, it is still that a lot of people's lives in this country are very, very difficult. And one of the things, presumably, it also is causing a huge amount of worry from business is Brexit. I mean, you talked about the idea of a, you know, a Brexit that protects jobs, that protects the economy. What economists are there who think that, that such a Brexit exists, that there is a form of Brexit that won't in any way damage the economy, at least in the short term? Well, in terms of people who say there'll be no impact, I think that would be a relatively small group of people who are you know, the ones very much attached to the ERG and uh, the Conservatives who want a, a hard Brexit. Certainly there are ways you can manage Brexit that mitigate the damage to the economy. And for us on the Labour front bench, it's a, it's a simple cost-benefit analysis. If you could say the UK will be better off by you know, decoupling itself from Europe, from seeking the autonomy that gets you free trade deals around the world, if that would objectively look to us like the better way forward, I think people would listen to that case. But it simply isn't. I mean, if you, people talking about joining you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like that, we do more trade with Germany than all of those countries combined. So certainly if you're leaving the political side of Europe, what you should be seeking in our view is a relationship with the European Union that mitigates the damage to the economy and therefore gives you a chance to negotiate some of the things that you'd want that deal to continue. Market access for financial services, no disruption to manufacturing supply chains. And of course, at the same time, you've got the political challenge of Northern Ireland to solve. I think it's pretty obvious what the deal should look like and what it should be. But at the minute, that's not something the government are willing to listen to. Um, in terms of uh, you know what the deal looks like for the government, as you sort of alluded to, one of the things you have to do is go around talking to business and doing sort of reassurance thing. The thing lots of banks don't like is the idea of becoming rule takers within the single market. However, given that so much of the driver, including in seats like yours, was you know, borders, money and laws, can that possibly be reconciled? Well, it depends on which bit of the city you're talking to in terms of whether the rule taker issue is is the biggest issue for you know a large. US investment bank, it's really not the issue. They just want somewhere to land in the single market and the UK is the most competitive and best place in their view to do that from. For sectors like insurance, it's a much bigger issue. It really is and uh, will undoubtedly affect, you know, how much business is done and located in the UK going forward. But you can't square the circle of that problem unless you're willing to be a member of the EU, and that is clearly not the mandate of the referendum. So you've got to take you know, some trade-offs to that deal. One of the frustrations I think a lot of people have with um, the Chequers deal, even if it is a deal that can be done or a deal the Conservative Party will vote for, it tries to fudge that issue. It tries to say you can be entirely aligned with Europe and get the benefits of all that frictionless trade and lovely market access. But then it says you can also seek free trade deals around the world and you've got no issues in terms of being a rule taker. That's just not realistic. You know, there are trade-offs that have to be addressed in terms of that final deal. And for us, we have to acknowledge to a certain degree, whether we are seeking a sort of a remote relationship to Europe or quite a close one to it, the EU is going to set the regulatory standards for the single market that we export the vast majority of our goods to. I'm afraid if we're leaving the EU as we are, we're going to have our say in those rules limited. And frankly, whether it's through a sort of formal arrangement or frankly, just the, the reality of selling goods to the single market, there'll be an element of accepting the rules and regulations that exist there. Okay, assume that there is for some reason, and this is, I can't believe I'm even saying this, a snap election on Friday that Labour wins. Uh, and actually it would be therefore John McDonnell standing up on Monday. What would he do differently? What are Labour's economic priorities at the moment? Well, I think there's a Two things you'd immediately look to. First of all, it would be that genuine ending of austerity. So the kind of, I would say, fairly reasonable tax rises that were contained in the manifesto to fund a greater degree of day-to-day -day spending. But then also a raft of policies designed to address 
the kind of economic problems which the Conservative Party agree with but haven't really got answers to. So we have things like in the in the manifesto, the, the National Investment Bank designed to drive up investment in the regions, but also lending to business, trying to address some of those issues of regional inequality. You've got things like a much greater set of trade union rights. So from day one, people are going to have the ability in their own workplaces to argue for a different set of paying conditions to what they have at the minute. So it's not just about spending. This argument we'll have on Monday is not just about who would spend more, how would they spend that money. It's also about the wider set of solutions to the economic problems of the country, which are widely agreed upon, but you know, the answers are strongly disputed. It feels like Labour is tiptoeing towards saying that universal credit is not only a, a failed policy, but one that you would essentially end the rollout of, roll back to some extent. That would be a huge spending commitment. Where on earth would you think that you get that money from? Well, I would argue that it's not quite the the huge spending commitment if that were the way forward that you might think it is. I mean, clearly, there are two problems with universal credit. One is its design and the speed of implementation that the government was seeking to do. The second one is a whole range of cuts to in-work benefits were piled into it every time there was a U-turn under Osborne. He never really U-turned, he just deferred it into the rollout of universal credit. So I think going back to the the situation before Osborne tried to do that is not an unreasonable position if that is what we eventually get to. But I mean, we, we've had universal credit in, in my constituency for quite some time. We were one of the pathfinder areas and it has fundamentally affected how I see the welfare state and how I see you know, the kinds of policies that government pursue. Tell me more about that. What do you mean in terms of what people are coming, are people coming to you for food bank vouchers or is it, is it that kind of stuff you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, the, so the original principle, which is to to simplify the benefit system, I think few would be able to to argue with. I mean, if anyone has seen the, the Child Poverty Action Group's welfare handbook, it is literally like a Bible. It is, you know, small text and uh, hundreds of pages long. But the way that it's been done and, and the assumptions that underpin that, I mean, the, you know, the key kind of Ian Duncan Smith-ism that underpins universal credit is this idea that there are generations of workless people. And until Ian came along and told them there's this great thing called work, um, you know, they had no hope or, or a future. I mean, the, the biggest problem that I see and have always seen uh, as an MP is the problem in so much as you're trying to find a problem to address is how people on, you know, low levels of income who are frequently going into and out of the labour market, either because the work is insecure in itself or they've got perhaps other caring responsibilities, maybe, you know, personal issues, health issues around drug and alcohol uh, dependency, how you can have a system that responds to those different needs. And we use bureaucracy as a country to try and do that. I, I think that is a mistake. I think you can never really properly design a system that will cover the complexity of, of you know, everyone who will be claiming it. And you, you need simplicity, but you can't try and micromanage people's you know, weekly comings and goings in terms of their income. And universal credit is flawed in its attempt to do that. It needs to be at a minimum slowed down. And the, you know, the transfer of people into universal credit, which unlike previous benefits, is going to be done by them. The government's not going to manage people to these new benefits. It's going to say, you've got to claim for universal credit by a deadline or you lose everything. And as soon as you claim, you're going to have to start the five-week process all over again. So there are huge problems with, with the rollout, but also with its design. But I mean, the question anyone will have now is, what would you cause in terms of the disruption to people to move everybody back to legacy benefits, many of which have been phased out in, in job centres up and down the country? But it certainly needs pausing whilst a proper plan is, is designed to go forward, because I don't think people quite realise that when we've, the problems we've seen so far have in the main been from new applicants to universal credit and in the main the relatively more straightforward cases, single people, you know, relatively young people. Once we start getting what well, the government's ambition is for 70,000 families a month 
directly transferred onto universal credit if a small proportion of those go wrong. You can see the kind of stories that will generate. My final question, the Chancellor by tradition is allowed to take any kind of drink that they want. It used to be an alcoholic drink. People seem to, I think Gordon Brown was the first one to swear off that and took sparkling water. If you were Chancellor, what drink would you take to deliver your budget? I would definitely take whiskey. Um, I think, you know, You've got to use your your rights in Parliament as you find them. And if you're the Chancellor and you can bring in a bottle of whiskey, surely you've got to try and use that ability now and again. Very nice. Thank you very much, Johnny Reynolds. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! That was kind of slightly drill, Sergeant John, but um, thank that's, you for that's, that's joining my, us. That's, that's my look. That's, uh, that's what I've often said as I walked into the office. Wow, why is John dressed as a drill sergeant again? Um, Stephen, like talk about it. <laughs> you wrote a, a very nice piece about the latest episode of Doctor Who, Rosa. And so the question is, is Doctor Who better when it's classical and it just is a kid's programme? So it's a family show, which throughout its its life, kind of the, the pendulum of what age it its writers are are targeting kind of swings and i do think it tends to be at its best when it is pitched at a nine to 14 audience uh that's about your level isn't it yeah it is it's about my level do you read ya um i do occasionally um mostly on holidays but i think then it it works best in terms of its characters, its essential theme, when it is effectively pitched at a YA audience. Moffat's really good seasons, um, Series 5, um, Series 10, were very effectively pitched for that audience. Uh, ditto uh, Russell's strongest seasons were pitched at, at, his, at, pitched at that audience. Helen, uh, are you holding back the, the urge to say that you're the only one who's around the table who's actually met Russell? No, anyway, it looked like you wanted met to Russell, say that. but actually Russell has made me several cups of tea. I brought him a load of um, hazelnut balls from uh, Ottolenghi, which I then ate because we talked for like three hours. Because what I like about Russell T. Davis is he's got at all times maximum commitment to being Russell T. Davis. Like you get full RTD, like it's like a hairdryer in the face. It was amazing. I loved him as an interviewer. Well, sticking with that theme, I met Stephen Moffat many years ago, nearly 20 years ago now, in a pub. Yeah. And he was... Was he miserable? He was quite rude to me, yeah. <laughs> so, because I, I, I said to him, oh, I, I really like Press Gang, which is this um, sort of YA kind of style show he wrote about a school newspaper in the 90s. And he just went, oh, you're too young to know any better. That is that. That's not rude. Though. That's self-deprecating. Which yeah, is different but it's, it, of, it was. But the problem is because he was like a sort of growly Scottish man who'd had a few pints. It came over. It came his, across as rude. I'll glass yeah. you. I, I love the work of Steve Moffat. I think it is. I, I take your point that Doctor Who needs to sort of simplify occasionally, and that some of the later seasons got a bit uh, overly complex. But I think my problem with this new season is that the writing is not very good. And while it's kind of being pitched at that much simpler level, often that's kind of disguising the fact that some quite basic things are really not being thought through in any way. I really like the work of um, Stephen Moffat, and at its best, uh, 
Blink, for example, it, it, like in Doctor Who terms, he is the finest writer of Doctor Who that there is. I also love, you know, have you read the Writer's Tale, the Russell T Davis book that yeah. he, he, and it, it is insane the kind of when it was the kind of the hottest show on television and people were stealing the scripts. They, like they worked through this incredible schedule where they were always like about to start filming and 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 they still hadn't sorted the script out two days before. Um, and RTD rewrote everyone incredibly heavily in a way that actually gave those seasons a lot more homogeneity, which I think is something maybe that's. Um, has changed since but I think also both of them fundamentally I think it's very exposing to write a lot of TV right it kind of lays your psyche bare so everything there's a thread running through all of Stephen Moffat's work and I love Coupling one of my favourite sitcoms ever written Jekyll is surprisingly good but weird but it turns out that spoiler alert what turns Jekyll from Hyde to Jekyll Jekyll to Hyde is women yeah because there's a sort of kind of giant fear of like the eternal kind of dark feminine in all of that work it is all sexual politics and i think also like there's not really a sort of obvious word for moffitt's take on this stuff because i don't think he's i don't think misogynist quite does it because he clearly like he he massively admires clever women and and he works with his wife and his mother-in-law right so which is i mean maybe that's why maybe he's scared of women but there's something sort of essentialist about it he does think there is some kind of fundamental difference between men and women like he may almost think women are better but he does think there is kind of quite a clear divide there yeah whereas i think the work of russell t davis is like a kind of there's a certain essential Labradorness to it actually and and the thing about Labradors is they knock a lot of stuff over but you never really feel there's malice I think it was one of the things I thought was really interesting about interviewing him was he said some really harsh things and kind of mm. really slags off other TV programs but the, his reputation is not at all like Mr. Bitter like it's because he's so gung-ho full pelt full you know burbling stream of joy and that's what his episodes are yeah you get all those TV episodes as well like some of them are horrible if you kind of think about the mechanics of what's actually happening love and monsters like oh yeah like killing off like you know a tenth of the world's population in one episode and that's the future the future of humanity have kind of come back in time to do that to themselves and like someone has sex with a paving slab john yeah i mean i was kind of steering away from that the, the paving slab sex, which is now all anyone's thinking about. But Chris this is Chibnall, great for the people who are listening who don't like Doctor Who and now also have paving slab sex. Are you enjoying this? I think this? the difference this is... This is the New Statesman podcast. Stop it, John. I think, the yeah. differ- I, think the, I think the difference is, crucially, between the two is that um, the RTD era had very, very strong, drawn-out characters. Most Moffat characters are actually just archetypes, uh, which is why uh, many of the women characters... Uh, feel like they're written in quite a sexist way because they are just an archetype. And the thing is, is in the in a in a strong Moffat era episode, that doesn't matter because the plot carries you through. But when the quality does dip, um, there's no kind of um, sort of backstop, as it were, of uh, family of, warmth, yeah, right? Which is what you get in Russell T. Davis. So I think, yeah, the other example to me is Time of the Doctor, right? Which actually has the same plot structure as Parting of the Ways. The Doctor is in a bad position. He can't escape. He knows he's going to die. So he sends the companion home so they'll be safe. And there are two crucial Remind differences. Remind listeners which one that is. So Time of the Doctor is the one where Matt Smith uh, dies and turns into Peter Capaldi. Parting of the Ways part is where Christopher Rose. Eccleston oh, yeah. uh, keels over and turns into David Tennant. And the, there, are, there are a couple of crucial differences about why Parting of the Ways works and Time of the Doctor does not. Uh the first, of course, is that it's got when, Captain Jack in it. Isn't when Rose is uh, back home, being sad, and he's dying. We know who all of the characters are. They mm. have names and personalities and characters. Whereas um, Clara's family, uh, who I would defy anyone around this table 
to give an accurate description of who Clara's extant family members in any given season are. Um, we've never met any of those people before. It has no weight because Clara has no character. Her character changes wildly in every different season she's in in order to service mm. the needs of being uh, the companion to those stories at that time. And crucially, she has no agency in her returning to save him either, uh, which means that uh, as well as uh, that being annoying from a gendered perspective, it means all of the scenes with her in Time of the Doctor drag because she's just sitting there having the plot. Meet in the room. Yeah, yeah, she's meeting the room. Um, I, I think it's much simpler than that. I think it's just Clara was rubbish. But I think it's true I, I, of I, all... She's played by quite an annoying actress and was there too long. But I feel like that about Martha. All three of We've the all companions... We've wiped out Martha from our minds. In the, uh, the Moffat era are actually just archetypes. Um, yeah, but what, I think, but I think it works with Karen Gillan playing Amy because she kind of plays against the script. Like Amy is written as the same kind of you know Moffat female archetype too, which is kind of you know a bit gutsy and funny and snarky. They're all basically written the same, but like Karen Gillan plays her as you know completely mad. Like she just plays it as if she's insane and she doesn't worry about how it looks. And so I think that makes her much more interesting than when Jenna Louise Coleman plays Clara as she's in the page, which is very boring. Um, can we talk about Chris Chibnall, the new showrunner, and responsible for, well, John, your and my favourite ever Doctor Who universe episode, Meat. Alien Meat? <laughs> I can't even do the Welsh accent. It's got no bones in it. Um, uh, this is a genuine problem. Every time Helen and I talk about Doctor Who, we do end up watching the trailer for the Tortured episode Meat, which is the greatest 30 seconds It's ever a huge space kebab. So in season two. <laughs> Yeah, it, They're crying about a sausage. I just can't believe sentient. you got that far into Torchwood. I like Torchwood a lot. I liked it's it when terrible. Little Owen when, when, um, became dead and then started vomiting up everything that he'd eaten. I like. I thought that that was great. Anyway, um, Chris Chibnall, a very different kind of writer again. Stephen, what do you think of his season so far? Well, I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised by it because before the Chibnall era, Chibnall had, uh, had basically written episodes which were either in the case of uh, the Silurian two-parter, just very dull, 42, very dull, or just a kind of eminently forgettable ra- uh, runaround like uh, Is the Silurian on one the one where they, it, um, I think it was described by um, that great review site as basically the, one of the p- plot points is that there's cuddly Dr. Mengele, right? There's someone who's doing experiments on stuff in a bunker and we're supposed to like, we're supposed to nonetheless yeah. love them. At first he's this kind of horrific character but later the doctor says to him, no, I kind of love you. And it's just clearly like the two halves of the script aren't talking to each other. Uh-huh. It looked like they just kind of changed the plot halfway through and didn't redraft the beginning. Yeah, it, um, has actually, I think, so far. I mean, admittedly, like the yeah, the fascinating thing is we've this is now a show which has had three quite distinct eras in some ways. But actually, the um, the model RTD built when he rebooted the show of you know first episode in the present, second they go into the far future, then in the past, then spoiler alert, next episode they go in, go, they come back home, and the bad thing has come come to mm-hmm. effectively remains unchanged by all of them. I think the the big difference is that. Um, yeah, much to my surprise, the Chibnall era has been quite good. I'm quite enjoying it. I have yeah. to say, I like it. I just think it was one of those things where, uh, not to come back to me uh, and my great time I had with RTD, but he did say about the people who objected to the Doctor being a woman, you know, get out of the light, just get out of the way. And I feel like the same kind of people who are slightly mourning the kind of end of the dark fairy tale of the Moffat area. There's loads of shows doing gritty. Actually doing big bouncy Labrador is harder and there's not that many other shows that are, are whole family shows that are big BBC Tea Time ones. I'm, uh, I'm all for it. I mean, it's clearly working for people. The ratings are better than they've been in years. The reviews have been good. I just think there's a lot of stuff that they kind of haven't thought 
through. <laughs> like nothing as bad as the, you know, lizard Dr. Mengele thing. But there is stuff like, so the character of Yaz so just takes her jacket off and then stops being a policeman. And they forget, she doesn't act like a policeman after that. Like they're, at no point do they consider the She's fact a police she, lady. You, thank you for that. <laughs> but, yeah. but like there's just lots of stuff. So like in the second episode where like we're told that the water's really horrible, it's going to kill people. And then it just isn't a factor. There's just lots of That stuff was very left. weird. That was like, and then there was absolutely no danger. You sort of thought mm. they'd written that into an earlier draft and then there was going to be a whole scene. And then actually what they did is get on a boat and then they always had a, yeah. had a bit of a nap. And then I thought, well, all the kind of mean bastards who are supposedly in this race for their lives are going to tip them off the boat into the water. That's what they're going to wake up but instead the young guy just woke up from a very refreshing sleep yeah nothing bad had happened i also like the fact that the monsters in that episode were evil scarves i thought that was very scarves cool. are evil but the whole point scarves. of that i have my scarf is my it's texture thing. right it's basically we're in a big scary world even the water's gonna kill you there's scary things in the dark uh, while basically fleshing out for, for new uh, viewers things like the Doctor doesn't like guns, the Doctor doesn't like violence. Um, you have the two gritty space characters who are essentially like the worldview that the Doctor supports, the worldview that the Doctor opposes, right? I mean, this is like my, my big... Because I think the weird thing is, so obviously in a way, casting a, a woman as the Doctor is quite radical, but in a more important sense, actually, in terms of the audience that matters to the show, I people in that 9 to 14 bracket... Anyone not called Peter Capaldi is is radical casting. Uh, And the important thing of that kind of opening block of meet the companions, go into the future, is to reintroduce the Doctor to the audience. And I think the kind of scary planet does that quite well. I thought Art Malik was was very satisfying. I think the interesting thing is, although I enjoyed uh, uh, Rosa a lot as an episode, as I kind of said in my article, um, historicals, I think, probably my favourite genre of Doctor Who episode. And um, this was actually the only one which didn't wholly work for me because the the villain whose job is effectively to be the contrivance because they clearly still feel that you can't anymore have a solely historical adventure, uh, never quite convinced and had that problem. I think a lot of humanoid opponents of the Doctor often have, but when they face off with them, it's just like, but you're not going to win, are you? Also, he got zapped back in time. I mean, presumably to turn up later again, who knows? But that is pretty close to killing him if you put him anywhere outside of a very narrow band of time in which humans can survive on Earth. Um, Quickly to wrap up, I want nominations for the best and worst things about Doctor Who in its current form. I'm going to say best thing. Sorry, I'm going to gazump you on this, John. Bradley Walsh. He is really good. Stunningly good. It's really confusing. And right. his his pathos is 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 upsetting and really nicely done. His timing is perfect. Um, I like him as much as anyone since Catherine Tate, who was also another surprising older companion whom I loved. Um, worst thing is obviously that David Tennant is not my wife. Okay, I'm going to broaden that. I think the cast is really good. It's an incredibly good cast, incredibly watchable. Uh, I will single out Toting Cole's Ryan is very is is very good. Um, worst thing is just the writing's a bit. I know it's only episode three, but come on, give us something with meat on it. Alien meat. So I think the the best thing is is Whitaker, who I I really immediately like uh, as the Doctor. Uh, she's sort of pleasingly uh, kind of weird and alien looking. Yeah, my problem is with the casting is when you have someone like Peter Davison or David Tennant when they're kind of going, "I'm an alien." It's like, are you? You're just a bit too much of a pretty boy. Like, but by the end, Tennant's kind of face grows into the role. But in that first season of Tennant, he just looks too much like an ordinary He's always bloke. got alien teeth. He's always um, got great, like that great kind of thing he does with his teeth, where he really sticks his top teeth out. Whereas she's got that kind of pleasing sort of Bern Gorman kind of um, Matt Smith, like kind of like... What? Angularness to her. 
left and she kind of looks and just is more. Have you been watching the wrong program? Um, Jodie Whittaker doesn't look anything like Bern Gorman. No, but she's got an angular thing, right? If you actually think about her face, John, actually think about it, not just in a kind of like, is one a woman, is one a man, but they've both got that kind of thing where you would never say that like Matt Smith or Bern Gorman is unattractive, but yeah, also have a kind of like odd quality to them. That means, and they're slightly more believable as a kind of. I sort of see what you mean like, in that she's got she's quite cheek bony. Yeah, but David I, Tennant had really prominent cheekbones. Yeah, but he's got, but a, got a more ver- of a cartoon face rather yeah, than a granite in, face, right? Yeah, in a kind of very attractive cheekbones way. <laughs> it just there's just a quality. Um, the thing I really do not like is the new TARDIS console. Doesn't have a proper time rotor. Um, it's just weirdly dark. God. It doesn't look like someone lives there. I think that. Yeah, like fundamentally, the TARDIS both has to look like a cool spaceship and someone's home, and it needs to have a proper time rotor. That is not a proper time rotor. Well, on that bombshell. For, uh, for more discussion of paving stone sex and vicious alien meat, why not tune into New Statesman After Dark? Thank you, John. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not? Why not read some of my articles? Hey, just Google me. Just maybe send me a message. Say what you think about them, only if you like them. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! No, that was too loud. That was oh. too loud. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was like, off the chart. Like, can Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.